0: My name is Stacey Sargent-Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father,
1: please protect my soul.
0: Hi, and welcome back to ER Chaplains Watching ER. We're here for another great discussion of two more episodes of ER. I'm your host, Stacy Sargent-Lawton. And with me tonight, I have two other wonderful chaplains. Janie Toy Powell. Hi. And Sarah Jane Moran. Hey. Um. So tonight... We have moved into 1995 on ER, and the first episode we're going to look at is Happy New Year. Janie has a recap for us. Okay, so at the beginning of the episode,
1: um, Carter is having a pretty good day, you know, doctorly speaking. He, He rushes in with a gunshot wound victim he found in the street, and he does some heroic things in the trauma bay, and they rush the patient up to surgery, and because of his good work, um, Benton finally invites him into the OR with he and and Morgan Stern. Um, Later on, he makes a few blunders, um, but he also charms all of us with his nerdiness, Uh, and his awkwardness is just pretty precious. Um, And then Dr. Lewis, on the other hand, is having a pretty bad day. Um, Chloe decides that she's going to move to Texas with her boyfriend and the father of her baby, uh, with whom she's pregnant at this point. And um, then Lewis is treating a man in the ER. Um, she's actually treating two patients with, like, cardiology, heart attacky kind of symptoms, and she seeks out the help of Dr. Kaysen, and he um, tells her she's, <laughs> from my perspective, she tells her she, he. She was taken too long, kind of shuts her down. Um, she releases both of them, and the man um, comes right back in a ma- having a major heart attack and ends up dying. And Dr. Case then approaches her and accuses her of making mistakes and initiates a case review. Um, he accuses her of not having the knowledge or the experience to make the decisions that she made. Um, in the middle of all of this, there's a nice moment between Dr. Lewis and Dr. Hicks about um, not lead, about being assertive, which we should talk about later. Um, Morgan Stern later says that she lacks the assertiveness to advocate for the care of her patient and is worried about her specialty in the ER. Um, and there's a baby delivered um, to a, a mom who was heavily under the influence of drugs, Um, And they all, you know, all the doctors and nurses and everybody were kind of gathered around her, helping her and and holding her down. And it was just really a dramatic moment. Um, Dr. Ross and Linda have some relationship stuff happen. And um, they have a conversation about commitment. And then there's lots of, you know, those dramatic looks between Dr. Ross and Carol. Um, And I think that I've hit all the high points for this episode.
2: Okay, did I miss anything?
0: Um, I don't I think if you did, we will definitely we'll definitely discuss it to yeah
2: things if we need to, but that sounds like <laughs> the major the major stuff,
0: yeah, definitely. um, so where do we want to start? Well, I liked the um
1: just the whole struggle that Lewis went through as, with her advocating or attempting to advocate for her patients felt very familiar to me. I don't know about you guys.
0: Yeah, definitely. The whole not being assertive enough thing um, has been a big issue for a lot of us, I think, um, especially starting out um, as young women. That's, that's a difficult thing.
2: As chaplains, we are taught in our our training to embrace our spiritual authority, and that was something mm-hmm. that I really struggled with in my first few years of chaplaincy. Um, and it, it it sometimes the insecurity does become a cycle, and I see this happening with Dr. Lewis. That uh, the more others criticize her, the more insecure she becomes, and she lets that affect. Uh, Um, her work and she second guesses herself. So sometimes it can be really difficult to break out of that cycle, even though it might be easy for us to see her and know that she's capable. So it's really, it was really painful for me both of these episodes to watch her go through that because it was very familiar as a woman in ministry. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that what Dr. Hicks, Dr. Hicks pulls her aside at one point and says, you know, you don't need to apologize because, you know, this isn't a restaurant. We're not, you don't apologize for this taking so long because we're a busy ER and we're providing them the care that they need. And she, um, Dr. Hicks owns her own struggle and and even, you know, as a black woman and and tries to relate with Lewis. And um, I found that pretty meaningful moment, but um, I, I know, I don't know about you guys, but I think every school... Since I was in high school, every every boss I've ever had, even with with coworkers and colleagues, you know, everywhere I've been, somebody has said, "Stop apologizing so much. <laughs> you apologize so much. I mean, I can name you probably a dozen people who told me that. And I, why do we why do we do that? You know, why do we default to that place?
2: Amy Poehler talks about that in her book that women are taught to apologize even when we don't need to, and that we have to break ourselves of that and to realize at what point we revert to that as our default. That we, we don't need to apologize for, for being in the same space as other people, for being there, for having the, the authority that we do, for, for having the specialties that we do, for having the gifts that we do. So I love that part of, and I can't remember which book it was, but I know it was an Amy Poehler book that talked about how women need to really look at why they apologize and try and stop doing it.
0: I think was it Yes Please? I think that's the it one. Might have been. I think so. Cause yeah, I've heard I've definitely read and or heard that one. Um and and I'm just trying to think of what else I was. Oh, Amy Schumer has a sketch about that. Um, that just it's just this group of women and they end up they start off apologizing for things that happen and then just gets more and more absurd where they're basically (laughs) apologizing for existing. Um, It's pretty funny because it's so relatable. So if I can find that on YouTube or something, I'll link it in the show notes. And I had our um, pastoral care professor that I think, I think probably all of us had, or at least knew Doug Dickens um, Mm -hmm. at Gardner Webb he at one point forbid me from using the words I'm sorry when I spoke in class because literally everything I said I was starting it off with I'm sorry but and <laughs> and I and then I went every time I would speak for the next few weeks it was so hard I would have to catch myself and and I started finally doing I'm c- I'm certain that and then just say what I needed to say and it was great Ooh, it was it was really empowering <laughs> Um, right.
1: Like like what are you even sorry for? Thinking, learning, you know, I mean that's thing. But like mm-hmm. what are we yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it's such a reflex.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still a point of conflict in between me and my husband, and we've been married for twelve years. Yes. And and he's still he's like, Stop, stop saying that all the time. And you know, he's my um, most myself around him, I guess. So I the, the I'm sorry come out a little bit more often than they do, maybe even at work these days. But
0: Yeah, my my husband says the same thing and I was sick at one point and really feverish and kind of out of it. And he was like, You just kept telling me you were sorry and I don't know what you were sorry for. But you just <laughs> felt so bad about having a fever. I don't know.
2: Yeah, Women aren't allowed to be sick, especially <laughs> when there's a family to take care of. Right. That's to find. How
1: interesting that one of these patients, uh, Dr. Lewis's, um, was concerned about getting out of the ER in a
2: hurry to go take care of her sick kid.
1: I mean, that kind of parallels that, right? Like, she was who sick herself months.
2: and then...
0: Yeah, her daughter yeah. had mumps. So <laughs> a thing back in the
2: mid-90s, did we not have a vaccine
0: then? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering not that, not too. Vaccine.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) didn't we all get
0: the mmr yeah
2: no i I never had mumps as a kid so i i think they're i I don't know i thought that was an interesting reference that they would specifically say mumps i don't know
0: maybe she was an anti-vaxxer i don't know did they have those in the 90s
2: (laughs) no not really if well they, they they did but they weren't as loud about it i wonder if
1: you know I think, what did I read, that this script was originally written in 1974?
2: Maybe that's a holdover. Oh, Um, did Michael Crichton have it sitting in a, you know, drawer somewhere? Yeah, he wrote it it when he was in med school, the pilot, yeah. Okay, well, that would make sense. Maybe some of the, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about later episodes, but. (laughs) Dr. Hicks, uh, you know, she says flippantly when the woman says, I have to get home to my kid with mumps. Dr. Hicks says, oh, I have one with mumps, too. In that same scene. So it kind of made, I didn't know whether she was being sarcastic or not. So, <laughs> I mean, she could have uh, had a yeah, second I'm sure, but. Maybe that was
1: just a lapse, you know, in
2: the writing. I don't know. Speaking of, of lapses, not with the writing, but I felt that the labels in this episode were really heavy. We had Bumsicle. Oh, that would really a bother man me. man with uh, severe frostbite who would. Probably end up losing his feet. We had Dead Shovel, mm. the man who died shoveling snow, um, just keeled over. Uh, I just, I felt like, oh, and then, of course, they use Gangbanger every single episode. Yeah. Can we not be more specific about, you know, all these people make choices for reasons? I don't appreciate that either. I get it. I mean, I know that we we make quick, you know, references for everyone. Oh,
0: are you there?
2: Maybe because part of our job as chaplains is to remind the staff of people's humanity. So maybe that it just always stands out to me. I don't know. Yeah, I was. I'm why. Oh,
1: sorry, Stacy, go ahead.
0: Oh, that's okay. I was just saying that. Yeah, as the chaplain, I would hope that in those situations that I would advocate for not using those kinds of cruel labels. That we, you know, these people have names and. Um, just advocating for a little more humanity.
1: I can think of a few labels um, that I use and and that I think have been used at a lot of hospitals, and they're not as harsh, um, as mean as those, but they're not the most compassionate way to refer to a certain population or demographic. And I don't, it just, there's a, I don't know if there's just a certain group and you see them all the time and you just start, like it's like a nickname like you nickname these this kind of patient so you can communicate quickly to somebody else what's going on um i you know i don't i have to stop myself sometimes from from using those um i i don't really even want to share any examples because i feel like i'm gonna i'm not
2: proud of that i mean in the er we have our own language of of you know shortened we say mva's um, for motor vehicle accidents, gunshot wound is shortened. You know, the different types of trauma are just dis- are described. You know, with uh, with just a few letters, and so it's a natural right. thing to try and want to shorten the way that we describe things. But we don't want to describe people that way. So
0: there
2: there right. is a fine line sometimes, and I think that it's it's part of the chaplain's job to be aware of that. And I think with kids now when I, I talk with them about the power of words and about being kind and, you know, those those things just, they just stick out even more to me sometimes because I think of my children calling each other, you know, potty words or something, so.
1: Yeah, I don't even think that it's always meant to be, like, derogatory or anybody's really meaning, anything mean by it. I think it's just that's a quick way to communicate so much of what's happening. Like, like if you say, bum then we know that, okay, this guy's homeless. He's probably got this list of health problems. It just communicates a lot of information. Now, that doesn't make it right. Uh, but I think that's why
2: it's so tempting to do that uh, when you're working in kind of a fast-paced chaos, kind of like that. But. The funny thing was that he ended up being a very racist bum
0: yeah I yeah. Just kind of ironic. yeah, he didn't want that colored doctor working on him That's right. <laughs> so there are just labels flying from all sides yeah um i was thinking i don't hear like a lot of those in the er i think there's probably some training around not doing that kind of thing now more than there would have been in med schools back then but Frequent flyer is one that I still hear a lot for patients who come in all the time to the ER. Um that one still gets thrown around, and but it's definitely a lot less cruel than <laughs> some of the ones that I hear on TV ER.
1: That's a good example of one that that isn't meant really with any kind of ugliness, just that he, I mean, people are just trying to communicate. A certain set of common needs, common symptoms, complaints, so.
0: Yeah, it is just kind of a shorthand sometimes. Yeah, that's a good word, shorthand.
2: <laughs> we have a firefighter that comes in um, with 60% burns over his body and um, I, I felt like there should have been a whole slew of chaplains in that situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that often firefighters are, are chaplains to each other, but obviously there was um, some concern over the brand new firefighter who'd been there for three weeks over showing his vulnerability to the others because he hides in a phone booth to cry. And Hathaway ends up being his chaplain at that point. But I'm not sure she, if I, she did okay, but she could have done better. That's not, you know, her training. So a chaplain would have been good there.
1: She often takes on
0: that role, doesn't she?
2: Yes, she does.
0: She does. She's a, a nurturing presence for sure. Um, and when we have, I mean, the firefighters a lot of times have their own chaplains um so it's like, it's even doubly shocking that there was neither a hospital chaplain nor a fire department chaplain there with that situation correct right
2: i think we can you all re- have... oh, relate to that as when we first start out in our chaplaincy and there's a joke that you know there's a baptism by fire because we all have to start somehow we all have to jump in and you know, for, uh, do our first intubation, you know, sometime, not us. Carter <laughs> right. did his first intubation on this episode. Um, so I, I related to that because, you know, you see your first really upsetting um, case in the ER. It really makes you question, do I have what it takes? Mm-hmm. Is this where I'm meant to be? Is this really my calling? Am I tough enough? Um, so I, I definitely remembered some of my first calls. And I saw him, you know, suffering in that phone booth.
1: Have you guys worked in hospitals with burn units?
2: No, Augusta was the nearest burn unit that we usually sent people to. Does MUSD have a burn unit?
0: No, we are getting one. Um, they're building it. I think it's supposed to open in 2020. But for now, we send people to Augusta as well.
1: Wow. They're so um, rare. Burn. Yeah. I mean, we send, um, I think, I, I guess Nashville, I don't even know, but um, it's just so rare to, you know, hospitals with burn units are rare. And it always seems like just such a different kind of tragedy and different kind of pain that the people caring for these patients are experiencing, a different kind of calling for these, you know, providers and and nurses and, and folks in the, in these burn units, um, people I've I've heard multiple times, people who work in horrible, you know, horribly intense kinds of settings say I could never work in a burn unit. Hmm. Um, I've never worked in a hospital with one, so I don't know, uh, I don't have any firsthand experience, but that, that's one thing that, that I thought
2: when I was watching this episode. I would say that anytime burns did come in, it was definitely added to the the tense feelings that made the staff very anxious. Um, so it was another level. Um, I have. I, I'm glad to know that there has really been some advances in uh, in ways to treat burns. But it remains just a, such a horribly painful recovery if you do recover, and also um, it just leaves you in such a vulnerable state to basically have to regrow, you know, part of yourself. So, I do think that it, it does affect people more deeply. I can think of some instances with children that I try not to think about too much. Mm-hmm.
1: I wish we could consult with a medical person. Um, just, I, I'd, I'd love to be able to maybe pin down some of the the psychosocial and, and spiritual issues around that, around burn care and burn um, and caring for burn victims. I think it's, it's the what's going on with people and, and the buttons that it pushes and, and staff is, is mysterious to me. And, um, I, I think it's because of my ignorance on the topic, but I'd love to hear more, read more about it.
0: Yeah, and if you're listening and you're a chaplain with experience in a hospital with a burn unit or a medical professional with experience in a burn unit, please let us know on social media um, or email what that's like and give us some insight into that.
2: Speaking of medical professionals, I felt that um, in dealing with the 19-year-old woman who came in and ended up going into labor, it was on um, prescription pills, not hers, and cocaine. Um, I was really proud to see that the nurses during her having the baby, which was breached with a prolapsed cord, so they were joking that it was pretty much as bad as it could get, the whole situation, that the nurses were holding her hands, They were smoothing her hair back during labor. They were... Um, they were just being so sensitive, and I, I, I think especially female nurses just tend to be so protective of of women who are in labor. but um, I really thought that considering everything that was going on and even though she's in an altered state, they still saw that you know in her, and that you know she needed dignity while she was in labor.
0: Yeah, definitely a lot of. A lot of compassion for her, even though it was a really complicated situation, and it was sort of a contrast for then a later scene, Susan is talking to Mark about her sister's pregnancy, and is just so pessimistic about chloe's chance for any kind of a future and tells mark that she told chloe to get an abortion and that's one of the reasons that she thinks chloe is leaving to move to texas with the boyfriend and mark suggests you know maybe this baby will turn her life around and susan just has no belief whatsoever no hope that that could ever happen
2: i can see both sides in that situation i i will admit that watching this this 19-year-old high on dr- drugs having the baby, I'm, I was struggling with my own emotions of being compassionate with her um, because I was thinking about all the things that this baby would face and the same thing would go for Chloe's baby and, you know, Susan had, has to pick up the pieces whenever Chloe comes back into her life and so I think that's one of her defense mechanisms. And I wonder also, you know, Collie, Susan Lewis has so much going on in her life. We've completely shoved Div out of this picture for the moment, but she just went through that. And she's been dealing with Chloe and her boyfriend, Ronnie, living with her. And she's also lost control of herself at the hospital, kind of. So I feel like in the scene where Chloe says that she's moving, that in Susan's face for a moment we can see both relief and desperation because mm-hmm. again this is something else she's lost control over as if she ever really had control but she was trying to control it for a while
0: yeah oh there will be much more with susan and chloe and all of that throughout the season um Oh, I did just want to mention, I don't think that you got to it in your recap, Janie, that Mr. Venterbeck does end up dying. Um, He comes back in in cardiac distress after um, Dr. Kaysen signed off on discharging him. Then he comes back in in cardiac distress and he does not survive. And then Dr. Kaysen is very quick to put all the blame on Susan. And that's sort of how we're left Mm -hmm. hanging at the end of that episode, um, that all this is going to get pushed off on her as the resident and all because she, you know, he had been in two months ago complaining of back pain, and apparently that's something that she should have known was a was a sign that he needed, you know, to be admitted and um, observed more, even though the tests that she did run had come back with good results, that this should have been a warning sign that she should have caught, and she didn't mention that to Dr. Kaysen, but it was because he was in such a big rush to just you know, get through this and sign the papers. Um, he wasn't really listening to her all that carefully. So I can see both sides of it, but I guess she needed to she be more assertive, but she does, but she doesn't they try hard enough, they're so. saying. <laughs>
2: yes, they said that she should have interrupted him back, basically, I guess is what they're saying in the end.
0: Yeah, and I just wonder if he would have run over her and interrupted her so much if she hadn't been a young woman, you know? I feel like
1: the the young exponentially affects the woman part of it, and I don't know if you guys experience that, but as I have aged in my work in my career, you know, it's it's less and less common. I think for people to be just so like absolutely disarmed by by having a a female clergy person care for them um if they're not comfortable with it and um i don't i mean some of that might be changed how culture's changed in the last 10 years Mm -hmm. or whatever but I, i think a lot of it is that it's one thing if you're a woman and like okay that's its own obstacle for some people but if you're a young woman like people they just don't even know how to wrap their heads around it because um, if you're a woman, a lady preacher, you're supposed to at least have like you know short gray hair and wear um, a pantsuit or something. And so I think that I, I have talked a lot with colleagues about how age plus gender has an impact on all of this. And um, and, and I mean, I think young men experience a little bit of it. I saw in my C.V.P. residency that some of my young men, young male colleagues. There was a little pushback, even just because of their youth, but but it's like this this toxic combo that when you put young and female together, it just blows up. you did you guys? And God God forbid that, that they consider you
2: attractive, because that's gonna make it completely explode. <laughs> I, I yeah. I mean, I like, had people okay. say, "Oh, you shouldn't wear your glasses. You'd be so much more attractive." What does that have to do with me praying with you? Right. Or, or you're um, too
1: pretty. You're too pretty to be a
2: chaplain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How and are not um, married yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, the comments just keep coming. <laughs> when you're in your 20s and you're a, cha- a female mm-hmm. young chaplain, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. For those of you who are still young female chaplains or male chaplains who even get inappropriate comments, hang in there because <laughs> as you mature, those things will start to go away. That's the good news. <laughs> I think it's pretty much the you know one of the only. Uh, professions where, you know, aging and maturity is, gets you a little more, I don't know, <laughs> authority,
1: I a guess. A little more street cred. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was pretty excited cred. when I had some white hairs. I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, I won't have so many questions about whatever. You know, people just get, like, all excited and weird about it. But what 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 was I supposed to do in the meantime, like, graduating from divinity
2: school, is I supposed to just like sit around and wait until <laughs> like I got
1: old enough?
2: No, old enough just to, to get married like and have pastor. babies and stay in the kitchen, I guess. <laughs> That's what they were implying to me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, when I'm I started bitter. out, I had a little bitterness behind it. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> no, when I when I started and I was you know 28, 29 years old, even in my early thirties, I would get all the time well, you're, you're not old enough to be a chaplain. They would take one look at me and say that, having no idea how old I actually was. But um, I don't get that now that I'm 40. So that's kind of nice. But I don't think it's, I mean, I definitely think in some senses it is worse for us, but I don't think it's exclusive to us for sure because I know a lot of the medical residents at my hospital, since it's a teaching hospital, we have interns and residents, um, and a lot of them will, will have patients say like, oh, you look like 12 years old, how are you a doctor, you know, that yeah. um, it does take a while for them to age out of that kind of um, thing.
1: Good, that's a good catch. If I, I may have told you guys this before, and please stop me if I have, but the doctor, my grandmother died uh, within the last couple of years, and the doctor caring for her um, went to high school with me, and I was like, oh, wow. what? Like, they let, they let us they let you do this? <laughs> like, are we old enough for this? Like, it was so and he did a wonderful job, and I'm grateful for the care he provided and um, his expertise in his, in his field. Like, but, and now I feel kind of, like, proud of him. And I, but it was just weird for a minute. It really caught me off guard. <laughs> like, remember? Middle school.
2: <laughs> they do mention that in ER some, that the, the jokes with the new resident about them being young, and being inexperienced, not even knowing how to do an IV, and we talk about in the next episode. We have a very young-looking female resident mm-hmm. that comes in, who you know gets hazed of sorts. So, yep, we can we can come back to that. Yeah.
0: Yes, we definitely will. Um only other thing that i might mention from this episode we had mr and mrs babcock an elderly couple who were found unresponsive by their neighbor in their house um she's a young woman who says that she's lived next door to them her whole life and they're basically like her grandparents which was so sweet and doug and carol almost immediately suspect carbon monoxide poisoning and then the neighbor does say that they had a kerosene heater so the tests prove them right on that And Doug spends some time with them and some time with the neighbor and sort of hearing their love story and is very moved by the fact that they've been married, I can't remember, over 40 years. And the husband was a baker and he still bakes this cake every year for their anniversary. And Doug is just sort of, really taken with those stories and sort of seems to be yearning for that and then he's telling Linda the pharmaceutical rep this story as he's at her hotel room later and she just does not have the same kind of reaction at all (laughs) and thinks it's kind of ridiculous and ugh, why would anybody want to be married that long you know so there's really not a future with her and she knows that I think Doug does deep down too I don't think he really thinks he's gonna marry this woman but Um, She is just not afraid to very plainly state that they are not in it for the long term.
2: Well, she also very bluntly states that men are afraid. They're afraid of a lot of things, but they don't like to admit it. They're afraid of aging. They're afraid of commitment. Um, They're afraid of their own emotion. So, I mean, she totally has him pegged. Yeah, she's got his number. But but she also won't stop to actually look at his face while she's saying that. I I don't know. So maybe she's talking a little bit to herself, too. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I do think she was actually in the bathroom looking in the mirror. She was saying that, so. Yep. Wow.
2: Now, my husband, um, who has a, a big hobby about cooking, the part in the, this episode that um, he had to point out was when Green um, and Lewis break into the cafeteria after hours, and he's making omelets, and Trey's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. He heck would never <laughs> allow that. <laughs> That's
0: a good catch. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Maybe they didn't crack down as carefully on that in the 90s. Probably not. Of course, Green can
2: probably get away with some stuff. Yeah. (laughs) I noticed back
1: to Mr. and Mrs. Babcock. Uh Is that their names? I Just one thing I caught was that, you know, Carol said, wow, they were lucky today. Because I guess they, you know, because they didn't die from there. Um, their close call, and Doug said, "I think they're lucky every day." Yeah, and I thought that was pretty sweet, romantic.
0: That was. <laughs> I was. glad he said it to Carol. <laughs> he has his moments, Doug Ross. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let's wrap this up talking about our first episode. Does anybody have any final thoughts or favorite moments from this one?
1: Carter kind of had a karate chop moment. you I remember in our first podcast, I mentioned that I loved that moment when when Ben did that, and he in the um, I guess after he got to after Ben invited him to scrub in on the surgery, he, he like I don't know kind of high- fived himself or something right there in the room, and I thought that was that was cute, kind of reminiscent of that other move, so that was my favorite moment. <laughs>
2: It pays to know the capital of Zaire.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: Kinshasa,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> I loved but that whole. Because they
2: talk about the, the, they they're implying that there's this inner circle when it comes to, the OR, and that this inner circle is a constant state of of change, and like, people are always trying to gain ground with with each other, and. This I, this is the first episode that we've we've really kind of gone into that, and I think that there's going to be yeah,
0: there will probably be more of that. Um, I just love that whole sequence with Carter in the E.R. I mean the O.R. Sorry was just a comedy of errors from start to finish, basically, that he's taking forever to scrub in because he's being so careful to scrub exactly as many times as Benton tells him. And, and then by the time he finally gets in there, he almost immediately touches Benton on the shoulder, and then he's contaminated himself and has to be taken out and rescrub. Um And then when he comes back in and the nurse just draws the little circle on the floor for him to stand in, it was hilarious. <laughs> But he does know the capital of Zaire, so Dr. Stern eventually invites him over a little closer and then a little closer and then lets him hold a clamp or something, I think. So he got, he got to be a little more experienced, um, get the OR experience a little bit more there.
1: He's so precious.
0: Little baby Carter. <laughs> So we will finish our discussion of Happy New Year there. And we'll be back in just a moment to discuss Luck of the Draw.
2: And we're
0: back. For episode 13 of the first season of ER, Luck of the Draw, and I'm going to attempt a recap, even though I will confess to you listeners that I'm not completely prepared. I watched this one kind of um, late in the game today, just a little while ago. My husband came into the bedroom and was like, what you doing? Are you cramming for the test? Because I was watching ER in the bedroom while I was folding clothes um, and trying to quickly take notes as I did it. So here we go. Luck of the Draw. So Susan has to go see Dr. Morgan Stern gets called on the carpet about Vinerbeck's death because Kason is blaming her completely. We meet Deb Chen, Dr. Benton's new student, and he immediately hands her off to Carter, who is happy to have somebody to boss around and do scut work. Doug has a patient named Lucy, a little girl who got bitten by her hamster and Lucy's aunt, Charlotte from sex in the city is flirting hard with Doug Ross. <laughs> Much to Dr. Green's shock, Doug isn't really into it. Um, Carol and Lydia care for Ubaldo, a homeless man in need of cleaning up. Carol is sort of freaking out over the wedding, still hasn't set a date. And as she's taking off Ubaldo's shoes, she gets stuck by a syringe that he has in there. And so, of course, has to worry about whether she was just contaminated with HIV or anything else that he may have. Um... Customs officials bring in Jorge, a man they apprehended at the airport, who they believe to have several condoms filled with cocaine in his belly, and he's been holding on to them for eight days, they say, and they want the doctors to help them get it out. Mark butchers Spanish trying to talk to him, and again, I'm like, where's the interpreter? (laughs) Uh, Morgan Stern talks to Susan about her need to assert herself, and Mark will later echo the same thing. Susan gets progressively more angry hearing it over and over again. Doug and Carol save a little boy, Ben, with um, who has a previous brain injury, and now he's in renal failure. Her father has uh, His father has a very flat affect and doesn't seem concerned about the boy at first. Um, Carol has Alan, a psychiatric patient who is, has an obsession with colors. Um, Carter sends Deb in to do a rectal exam on Jorge, and she gets stuck because she wasn't told to use lube. Benton's mom is missing, and he goes out with his brother-in-law, Walt, to try to find her. Um, Mark has been told by Dr. Morgan Stern that he has to co-sign all of Susan's charts, and she absolutely hates this. Um, Ben's dad signs a do not resuscitate order for him, and Doug Ross is kind of judging him for that. Um, A sociologist comes in who is studying violence and antagonizing people everywhere until they hit him and timing how long it takes them to get angry enough to hit him. The neighbor that Benton hired to watch his mom obviously wasn't doing a good job, and Walt is really angry about that and says that they're going to have to put her in a nursing home now, and Peter is really fighting back against that. Carol snaps when the sociologist picks on her about not having a wedding date yet, Um, Jorge starts crashing when one of the cocaine-filled balloons bursts in his stomach, and Deb tries to hand Carter the defibrillator paddles and ends up shocking him accidentally, and he is out on the floor. Alan, the patient who loves color, has a huge tumor around his heart and lungs. Um, Benton finds his mom, watching kids ice skate and reminiscing about his childhood. She doesn't know him at first, but then recognizes him, and they talk, and she says unequivocally that she does not want to go to a nursing home. A little girl um shot in a drive-by shooting comes in. Susan tries to put in a chest tube but can't do it because Dr. Cason is standing there criticizing her unmercifully. And um Doug tells Ben's dad he has an 8-year-old son. Later, a nurse asks Doug about what is his son's name, and Doug says, I don't know, Wendy. I've never seen him. Um... Ben's dad confesses that he wishes his son would die. He's been his 24-7 caretaker for the past two years, has been out of work, has no support system, and just sobs. I need this to end. Um, Carter wakes up, and Halle and Deb convince him that Deb gave him a rectal exam while he was unconscious, which was a joke, we think, Um A boxer named Mr. Parnell comes in, and Carol places him in the room with Mr. Desmond, the sociologist, who eventually gets punched out by the boxer when he antagonizes him. Um, Mark tries to apologize to Susan, but she's not having it, and the whole gang, minus Susan, goes out to Doc Doc Magoo's diner, and Susan is just sitting in her car watching all of them. And Carol announces that she has finally set a date, just in time for May Sweeps, for her wedding, and everybody (laughs) celebrates. So, there we go. (laughs) That meeting, um, Susan's meeting in Dr. Morgan Stern's office, I think, um, was that same feeling of it was hard to watch because it was so familiar, just like we talked about before, um, with the need to be assertive. Anybody else have any feelings about that?
2: I think I got them all out from last episode. <laughs> <laughs> I had strong feelings, but yes, it reminds me of my own training, being in my individual meetings with my uh What was what was this title? Uh, I can't remember. When I was in residency, I my, yeah. Your supervisor? Yeah, yeah my supervisor, oh, <laughs> I totally blanked, um, yeah. We, we, we regularly, at least once a week, would have individual meetings with our supervisor and we would talk about our strengths and weaknesses and it was generally just an awful, awful thing because I was, I was very good at scrutinizing myself, but, um, but it was still painful.
0: Yeah, my supervisor's favorite moment from my first unit, well, my first unit of residency, my second unit of CPE, was the day that I'd been on call all night, so I was exhausted. i had also slipped on some stuff that was spilled in the cafeteria and fallen down and busted my knee, so I was limping the whole night and into the morning. So I'd been in the hospital for like 30 hours at least by this point, and then I had a supervisory session with him and had to go over one of my verbatims, and he was talking to me about, being more assertive and not needing people to thank me so much which was something that he had said countless times before to me already and I was just so exhausted and cranky and just fed up I just threw my papers on the floor and said I've had it with this shit <laughs> and I told him I quit and I walked out of the hospital and I really thought I might never go back but I came in the next morning and showed up for staff meeting and he was just like Good morning, Stacy. How are you? Like nothing had happened. Because apparently, this happens all the time in CPE. Yeah.
1: (sighs) Unphased. Yeah.
2: Unphased. (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if those if those CPE supervisors don't have a little bit of that sociologist in them.
0: Yeah, they really want (laughs) to see how far they can push you. Yeah. (laughs) Till you snap. Yeah, I never I never <laughs> resorted
2: to violence, but but I did a lot of walking out. I walked out on my coworkers. I walked out on my supervisor. And then, of course, they they labeled me as being avoid, avoidant ah. <laughs> of the issues. But, hey, it was better than punching somebody.
0: Yeah, they always say the stereotype that I'd always heard of CPE supervisors is that they want to get the men to cry and the women to cuss. So ah, they succeeded with but, me. Yeah, that
2: sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> Easy success here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I did a lot of both, know. but...
2: <laughs> yep. Been... Wow, we're really selling this CPE thing, you know?
0: <laughs> Everyone, yeah, sign up for CPE.
2: Yeah. You'll learn new, new words you didn't know you knew.
0: <laughs> Certainly didn't That'd know you could funny. say to your boss. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You sometimes might even border on being encouraged to say it to your boss. Yep. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well, let's dive into the serious stuff. I thought that the parallels in this episode between um, Benton and not wanting to put his mother into um, a full-time care facility um, really, really... Um, Resonated with the situation with the uh, the man with the brain damaged son mm-hmm. who needed 24 hour care. Um, I couldn't help but think of those two contrasted with each other, and how Benton is not really willing. To, he has not, to this point, you know, taken any accountability in the the care of his mother, really. And mm-hmm. um, now all of a sudden he wants to step up when the other members of the family are finally setting their own boundaries for their own health. Um, And I feel like that's what this uh, father is trying to do, but um, he just doesn't, it feels like a dead end to him. It's a really heartbreaking scene watching him talk to Doug Ross in the hallway. I actually appreciated for once that Doug Ross kept his big trap shut and didn't say anything <laughs> he would regret didn't make any real assumptions i think he had made all the assumptions he could up till that point and so he was finally ready to listen
0: yeah i think and he that, finally heard that's the point that it became beautiful mm-hmm. yeah he kind of had tears in his eyes as he was listening to this man and finally realizing oh he does love his son and has loved him and cared for him 24/7 for the past 2 years and not had a moment to himself and has had no help from anybody and finally starts to understand where this man is coming from.
1: This seems like a good time to talk about, um, the importance of community. Um, and, and that absence that the Ben and Ben's dad had in their lives and the, the presence that Dr. Ben's family had. I mean, even if their community is just each other as a family, I mean, they have that, um, I always, when I am with families, love to hear that they have a, a network of people beyond their family that will come in and care for them and help them and bring them casseroles and pray with them and check in on them. Um, a lot of times that is a church, um, but sometimes it's it's just a group of friends or another, another community that they have. But um, that's a contrast, I think, between these two pictures we're seeing. And, and how I just, over and over, I run into that every day. You know, people, I guess with, oh, I feel like an old person saying this, but with the advent of social media and the way that we live our lives now, this great cultural shift we're going through, people are less and less connected with each other. Um, I think it's changed remarkably just since I've been working in this field. Um, but how there are so many people in my heavily religious part of the country who have nobody no church no extended family they don't know their neighbors they have nobody to call and and they have somebody that they love who is so sick who that who they're worried about um it's immensely stressful um not to mention just the, the the demanding the the time and the physical demands of caring for somebody who's sick. And I just, it breaks my heart. And I wish I could, my, my default response is to try to find them. Oh, have you tried this church down the road? You know, and Mm -hmm. that's, that's not always the the best pastoral answer for them. Um, But that is kind of where my brain wants to jump every time I've noticed Um, because that's what that church has meant for me. Um, But, So I think when I saw this story of Ben and his dad, I thought, they need a church. (laughs) They need a church to take care of them and to help
2: them. Well, where's social work in this? How how has (laughs) there been no option for respite care? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when we do go in and we do a spiritual assessment on someone for the first time, we ask certain questions. And I don't think most patients would recognize it as being an assessment. But we try and see, you know, where are they? What, what do they need? Um, where are the strengths and what are the weaknesses in their situation? And we always ask some questions that, you know, surrounding, do you have a community? Do you have a support system? Do you have family around? There's different, lots of different ways of asking these things, and that way we can kind of get to the root of um, how, whether they're isolated or not. Um, now, sometimes I will say that, that people sometimes isolate themselves and you, you, can't, you can't help them until they're ready to ask for help. It's the same kind of the same thing as an addict, but perhaps our society does have a downfall in the sense that it is an addiction to believe that we need to do it all by ourselves and that we are capable of doing it all by our, ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that needs to change um, because nobody wants to see that man broken in the hallway Crying over his son like that. Um, and I certainly don't judge him for the way that he feels in that moment, but but gosh, couldn't he have worked before that towards some other options? You know So it can be really tough as a chaplain sometimes when people are not willing to to seek out those options. It's kind of like you come across a, a battered woman who's not willing to take any steps to escape her situation. But certainly, chaplains do try and offer, you know, solutions for for things like that, and to plug them into some networks that can help yeah. them.
1: network—the word I thought of—just help them network with people around them who, who who care and who want to help. Yeah, some people don't want to connect. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, but I just got the sense with this father that that was never even offered to him. You know, I mean, at the time that he brought his son home from the hospital after this traumatic brain injury that had happened years ago, I think two years ago. Um, you know, wish that he had been given information about support groups and respite care and things like that because obviously this was before he could just Google you know and find an online group of other parents who were caring for children with brain injuries and people who were like him and he just feels so completely isolated and alone in what he's doing. And that will absolutely wear you down really quickly. So, of course, he feels like he's at the end of his rope.
2: Benton is really awful to his um, brother-in-law in in this episode. (laughs) I do not understand why he doesn't get punched or, (laughs) you know, his brother-in-law has a lot of self-control. To be able to have taken all of that and absorbed it and then walked away the way that he did Benson's um, self-righteousness about his education and not realizing the sacrifices that everyone else made to give him the opportunities that he had is just blows me away every time we've seen multiple scenes of him doing that and um he just doesn't seem to be growing in that area yet. <laughs> and his family sure does give him a lot of grace.
0: Yeah, they do. And he, you know, he, he really adamantly does not want his mother to go to a nursing home, which I understand and I hear from people in the hospital all the time. But he also doesn't really have another solution. He can't take care of her full time. He's a doctor, you know, and his, his sister and brother-in-law have been, the caregivers, because he's been in medical school and then been an intern and going through residency, and he hasn't been there, so they've had to be the ones to pick up the slack. So I understand them being angry at him for not really knowing and respecting their perspective that they have spent more time with her and know what her needs are, and know that they are at the point where they can't provide them. Um, and Peter just can't admit yet that he can't provide that either, and that she really does need full time care.
2: Well, his sister just recently got a job at the Parks and Rec Department, and she seems to make her face light up to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So she's put her life on hold for so long. How can he not see that she's finally finding fulfillment in something? And also, his mother said that she doesn't like being left alone. So I think that they need to build upon that. You know, let's put you in a community where you can have friends and where we can come see you. Um, you can build on that in a respectful way.
1: It's interesting. The, um, this seems pretty classic family systems to me. You know, you've got, I think it's pretty common. You have one child that, that is the primary caregiver for a parent or, or any family member. and And then sometimes there's another child who comes in and really hasn't, done much of the the work to take care of them but has lots of opinions and has lots of power. Um in this case. It 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 doesn't matter that he hasn't, you know, earned it. He still has this power. Um I guess for for Benton it's because he's a doctor. Um and he they, they do push back against that sometimes, which is, is seems good and, and healthy probably, but um I, I don't know if that's something that I see frequently. Um, I I guess I saw it more in adult hospitals with um, elderly patients and their adult children, but I'm assuming you guys see that too. Yes,
2: that's a very good point. Family systems and structures is something that we do talk about as chaplains.
1: Also, how about um, Dr. Benton's I'm going to call it the privilege of selfishness. (laughs) Like, There's a certain kind of I think selfishness—that's required to be a surgeon or a doctor. I I don't want to—I don't mean that in a—we're hating on doctors in this podcast. I just mean that like there's a certain amount of focus and and concentration that somebody has to have. I think to to make to gain that kind of knowledge in that amount of time and to to, just to do to jump through all the hoops that are required, there have to be people around them making sacrifices, um, and and I don't know that we we ce- we celebrate and I'm, I so ce- I legitimately celebrate doctors. I think they're amazing and incredible. Um, I think we should celebrate more like their families and the people that make it possible for them to do these things, um, because we we need. I don't know how to. I, this sounds judgy, and I really don't mean it that way. But but we need people with that mindset. We need hyper focused people, um, who who are like like Ben. You know, that's who you want to be your surgeon. But um, how could we health healthfully celebrate all these people that made these sacrifices to make that happen? In, in the real world,
2: and in our workplaces, they can be very difficult people to to relate to and be around sometimes because of that drive or because of that motivation. But those are also the kind of people who make medical breakthroughs and, uh, you know, I can think of some oncologists who might not be the, the best people, you know, persons, but, you know, they, they, the uh, studies that they do and, the you know, they just are so focused, like you say, on, on outcomes and wanting to, to better people's lives. Um, It just is in a different kind of focus. Um, So yes, sometimes it can be difficult to adapt to that, especially as chaplains when we work so hard to to see the individuals and to work on empathy. Um, And Morgan Stern praises Benson for his personality and for the way he is. but He talks about his arrogance, (laughs) as opposed to Susan Lewis, who apparently doesn't have enough of it. So that's interesting, because in other areas of life and in other parts of the real world outside of the hospital, that that would be completely flipped. But that's um, so why we all have different callings, I suppose. But it does, I mean, you just see how little of an outside life Benton has. Um, all he ever thinks about is being able to scrub in.
1: I I, I struggle. I guess I, I I struggle with finding, like, I don't, sh- I want to affirm that. I want to affirm the things about us that make us unique in our call. I want, I'm want. i trying to find more positive words to talk about this um, this quirkiness that Dr. Benton has that I think we all have seen in other people that we've worked with. Like, I, I think that that is something valuable. And, and how can we, as people who are so different than that, appreciate that in the people that we work with? I guess appreciate it... The, the cogs we are in the the wheel, you know. The, um, I, I I they can be hyper focused and feel good about the work they do because there are other people who can come in and sit down and have a conversation about what a patient's feeling after surgery, you know. And, and so the surgeon can move on to the next patient. I guess I I value my own role in that and my my ability to to be flexible with my schedule or. Or to have a little bit more time to dig into a conversation because I can justify it as that's that's my job, you know. So I can move things around so that they they can be. And I'm not just talking about doctors. I mean, so many people in hospitals have to be so focused, um, um, or or just in their heads a lot to to just to keep up. And so I like to be I like to be part of the like like you can you can relax, be in your head, do your thing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be with this family. I'm going to do my thing that I'm good at so that you can do your thing better.
2: But then I also want them to be able to do
1: the, you know, the listening and all that kind of stuff if
2: they can. So. but the problem with not, you know, if we're, if we're looking at the larger picture, all the different cogs in the wheel, the problem becomes when you're not able to appreciate all those different parts. If we, we sure. all need to, to appreciate the different parts that work in harmony. And so, when Benton's out there putting his mechanic, you know, business owning, you know, didn't graduate from high school, father and brother-in-law, that's, that's a real breakdown in the system, that he can't appreciate that and see it for what it is. Absolutely. But certainly within the hospital, I, I do understand what you're trying to say. Well, I, I mean, that's the thing is that, that
1: Peter Benton illustrates the, the brokenness of it, you know? So, like, I don't yes. know. I
2: don't know the solution, but... I'm not sure either. Besides realizing each other's humanity, and you know, that's what we're exploring here, I guess, our, our downfalls
0: and our strengths. And just realizing that we are capable of, um, challenging ourselves and and being different than what we've always been you know i think that was illustrated really well by alan the patient with the color obsession and you know he's told i think he knew before about the cancer it was really kind of hard to tell but um that you know that it's it's a really big tumor and it's encasing his heart and pressing on his lungs and he's probably not gonna have much time and so he talks about how one of the um the guys from the group home that he has lived at had got moved out and gotten his own apartment and wanted Alan to live with him. But Alan said he couldn't do that because the bathroom was green, had green tile and he just can't work with the color green. He can't tolerate it. And so he, he goes into a green room at the hospital and sort of is pushing himself to do that. And, and is talking to Carol and telling her that, you know, maybe he can, maybe he can do this. Maybe he can be a roommate to his friend and, and deal with the the green tile and so that we are capable of, of changing and being more flexible than we think we are a lot of times.
2: I loved that he was in a suit, Mm -hmm. that going to the hospital and bringing his colorful folder was something that he saw as a big deal, a formal event. I think he did see the, the gravity of what was going on and, um, I felt like every time he opened his mouth, he was so poetic. Like he mm-hmm. should write it all down, the way that he saw the world. And he says that um, he's what, what emotionally disabled, or I, I can't remember how he put it. That that was why he lived in the group home. At least that's what they they you know diagnosed. Him
0: yeah, like. that's how society had diagnosed him, right. or something like
2: that. Yeah. And I appreciated that the the two women that were treating him and and serving him. You know we're sensitive to all of those, those quirks that he had, and really took time to listen. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, any other thoughts from this episode?
2: The uh, the end. Where they're all hanging out in the tiny little diner across the street. I was wondering, did you all ever get invited into any kind of like after hours? I don't think chaplains are generally asked to go do those kind of things. I never was. but I have a I, I few like, times, I like yeah. I seeing them outside, there, uh-huh. you know, outside of the element of the hospital and um, seeing them interact together is fun.
0: Yeah, I've gotten invited to um, cookouts at people's houses, and um, i been out to a bar once with people from, actually from the ER, and and I love that, connecting with them outside the hospital like that, and, you know, being friends, like, I feel like I'm friends with them anyway, <laughs> but it's a whole different thing when you are, are with somebody outside of work, um, and it takes the whole social thing to a different level, so I appreciated that they let me into those times.
1: Um, We work like physically, like our offices, we share space with our social workers and our child life specialists and our interpreters. So I'm much more likely to spend, I've been invited, some things that especially our social workers have done. Um, But that kind of, I mean, their, their jobs overlap a little bit and we have some similar perspectives. And so that doesn't feel quite, it's wonderful and I love those people, but it doesn't feel quite the same as like hanging out the whole ER at a diner across the street. That's never happened for me. Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't think that crosses their mind to invite a chaplain, even though I think that they, they appreciate me and value me. I don't feel, I just think that
2: they don't think of me as
1: being interested in that.
2: <laughs> I remember you telling me about when they invited you, Stacey and how we, we sort of laughed over it and the jokes they made. I, I have, <laughs> we, we used to share our offices with um, Interpreters and uh, some other people as well, and I, I too did uh, interpreters, dieticians, social workers, um, those kind of specialties, which we did rounds with together on certain floors. So we, we spent a lot of time together, all day. So yes, but um, so I guess I did spend some time outside of, with certain kinds of staff. I wasn't really at any of the those places very long. You guys have more longevity than I do in that. that respect
0: yeah I've been in one place for a long time but there's so much turnover with the staff that there are so few people there who have been there the whole time that I have which I really Mm. miss a lot of those people Mm.
2: yeah I have heard that especially lately about the turnover with nurses
0: yeah
2: how it's um it's really tough on the industry because it costs so much to train a nurse in a specific place, but um, probably more so, they should be studying why there's so much turnover.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Perhaps
2: because it's such a high stress job or because they're frustrated with, you know, the computer work that goes into it. I I don't know if there's any one particular, but that's been a discussion that I've heard lately.
0: Yeah. And that's one place where I think we've mentioned before that chaplains can be helpful. Um, There was one of the units in our hospital recently that, honestly, is one that I had never been to before, it was sort of out of the way and not a, an ICU or an ER type of place. And um, with the nurses there, they had had a lot of really difficult cases and lost some patients. And then several of them had family issues going on. And they just asked if some chaplains could come and do a blessing for them is what they specifically asked for. And, and so we did, myself and one of my other colleagues went to the unit, and they all were able to step away from their work for five minutes, and, um, and we did a blessing for them as a group, and then went around and spoke to them individually, and they were just so appreciative of that. And you could sort of see the, the physical sort of exhaling and relaxing a little bit. I don't know what it was that that did for them, but it did something very powerful.
2: Well, it acknowledges them and the things that they do. I think, I think blessings. I mean, a, a Nurses Week or around Easter, when we do blessings of the hands or ashes on the forehead, both that physical intimacy with someone on a spiritual level as well as acknowledging, you know, we see and we understand what you do. I, I feel like morale is never higher than after we do those kinds of special ceremonies spiritually.
1: I've been, um, I, I'm pretty involved in uh, just staff care in general in our place. It's a big part of, I think, pediatrics. And um, I've, I've I've been trying to be really intentional about how to help with, with that issue, that turnover issue, and compassion fatigue and burnout and all that kind of stuff, low morale. And um, I've been being really intentional about modeling gratitude, and, and <laughs> it sounds really... It sounds really superficial when I say it out loud, um, but I've really put a lot into it. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, let's name, like, wow, like we, we get to be in this intimate space with these people and we get to help them in a, in a way that, that other people can't help them. Like what a privilege it is to care for sick kids. And um, I try to model that. I try to name it and all that kind of stuff a lot. I think that's important. And recognize the sacredness of healing um, I, I drop those words a lot. That's probably why I don't get invited to the bar when I talk about the sacredness of healing. <laughs> but um, yeah, because I feel like those are all tools we can use. Like if if uh, you know the there's somebody there cheering them on and saying you know, like what you do is a calling and special. That I hope that helps. Sometimes I don't know what what can help, but it's a hard job.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think just acknowledging that and being with them and the hardness of it and um, saying that we're all in this together and God is in it with us, that there's there's power and healing in that. Anyone have any other uh, favorite moments or final thoughts about this one before we wrap up?
2: I was cooking um, dinner right before I watched this episode and I, um, I minced some garlic and I guess that I didn't wash my hands very well. And um, so then I had tears streaming while I was watching Ben's father. Don't rub your eye with your garlic can when oh. you start to cry over ER. That's your James Tip of the Week. Take it into account.
0: That's a good one. Very important. I will just throw in another um, praise for 90s George Clooney. I just, I love the way the man delivers a line sometimes. Just that, you know, this little throwaway moment when Wendy asks about, you know, what's your son's name? And just the way he says, I don't know, Wendy, I've never seen him. Just, it was just brilliant the way he does that. I don't know. I'm just in admiration and awe of 90s George Clooney. It's
2: a good thing the elevator door, you know, shut behind him. That was part of the the beauty too
0: he does that that wounded (laughs) man child thing so well you just want to hug him
2: yes yes man child that's good (laughs) a a beautiful man child
0: i know yeah
1: have we talked about like his when he says he has a son the first time i watched this i was like what yeah i'm like i don't i've touched the head a little and i don't really think we hear much about this son Part of me was like, did he just say that to this dad? Like to connect with him? No, he's mentioned report. it before. He's he mentioned it
2: three times.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, you guys are, you have
2: such sharp minds.
0: <laughs> hey, when George speaks, I listen. I mean, I'm hanging on every word.
2: <laughs> well, Deborah Deborah asked about it in one of our prior episodes. Yeah, she did. We mentioned it then. I don't think you were on that one. So that's part of why I remember.
1: I, re- I vaguely remember
2: yeah, I'm sorry because
1: I can't. I, I okay. think in my brain, I was like, did I remember just watching this episode before? And that's why I'm remembering this. But yeah, so I haven't watched far enough ahead to know if we, we get to know more about that. But that's, I don't know that that was my favorite part, but it's a part that really sucked me in.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think it was very telling is it really changes the way you see Doug's interactions with this other father that he's, he's projecting some stuff, obviously that he feels like he hasn't been there for this son that he knows he has out there somewhere, but he's never met. Um, and so he's, he feels like a terrible father. So he's projecting onto this other guy and thinking, well, if I, you know, obviously if I were in this situation, I would be a better father because that's what he wants to believe about himself. Hmm. It was just interesting, and he just does it so well.
2: <laughs>
0: he kind of only has one thing, but he's really, really good at it in every TV show and movie that I've ever seen him in. <laughs> <laughs> the silver fox. He is. He is now. He was just salt and pepper fox in these days. He, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he looked He looked lovely at the royal wedding, you know? Well, he animal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there was a way, like, if you could tell, like, the 90s ER audience that, oh, hey, he's going to get married to this fancy lady, yeah. this human rights attorney, and they're going to go to Prince Harry's wedding, and it's going to be real cute.
0: And have twins together, like, he's going to yeah, be a gray-haired yeah. dad, and just, <laughs> it's just adorable.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, brother, where are they? He's kind of different in that one, but pretty much everything else that he's ever done same same line delivery same everything but it's great yeah it ain't broke yeah exactly nobody does it nobody does it better um i think i'm getting loopy and um high on george clooney fumes and it's probably time to to sign off everybody but thank you i think
1: think when we start laughing about george clooney that's like a
0: signal that, like
1: okay
0: it's time
2: Yep, yeah. I think
0: so. <laughs> but please um email us or talk to us on Twitter and Facebook and let us know what you think of 90s George Clooney. We would love to hear from you. Um <laughs> we would also love to hear some some reviews um on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. We have some five-star ratings, but no written reviews. So if you could take a couple minutes and do that, please do. Also, if you enjoy the show, tell people about it on your social media. I uh, just want to do a shout-out right now to at 94 who tweeted about us and um, talked about how much she missed us on this unintended long break that we just had. So well, that made me really happy. That made my day. I was, like, in the, hus- in the car with my husband, and I gasped, and he was like, what's wrong? And I was like, no, no, somebody's tweeting about us. It's good. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you, HayleyLooWho94. We love you. Um, Listeners, thank you so much for being with us. Janie and Sarah Jane, thanks for all your great insights and laughing with me and having another fun conversation. We will be back soon to talk about more episodes of ER. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue Two. You can hear some more of our great original songs at Rogue2, Two, that's T-W-O, dot rocks. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app so other listeners can find us. Let us know your thoughts about the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER, or comment on our Facebook page at chaplains Watching ER. You can learn more about the hosts and find show notes for each episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacey N. Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step parenting, and other stuff at staceynsargent.com. where you can also find links to get my book, Being Called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week for more insightful conversations about ER.